Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Gonzalo Herrero, I'm Architecture Program Curator here at the RA, and it's a great pleasure to introduce today's event, which is a conversation between architect Andrea Hacke and philosopher Nina Power. This is the first event in our new series, Aesthetics and Architecture, in which we invite architects and philosophers to examine and reclaim the role of aesthetics as a mode of articulating their relationship between architecture and different contextual sensitivities. This evening, uh, in this evening, we will explore the role that gender plays in forming ideas around architecture, interiors, and public realm, discussing about the specific aesthetic regime that these define. Uh, the series will continue in the autumn after uh, the opening of our new building, which will mark uh, the celebrations uh, around our 250th <laughs> anniversary. Um, yeah, the two events that will uh, follow this uh, one will be focusing on politics and ecology. Now let me introduce you to our speakers tonight. Uh, Andre Hacke is an architect and founder of the Office for Political Innovation, a Madrid-New York-based practice that develops architectural projects that seek to bring inclusivity into daily life. Hacke uh, is a professor at Columbia University and visiting professor at Princeton University. Hacke's works have been published and exhibited widely in museums such as the MoMA PS1 in New York, the Design Museum in London, and the 2014 and 2015 Venice Architecture Biennale, among many others. It was in the, in the 2014 uh, Venice Architecture Biennale where he was awarded with the Silver Lion to the Best Research Project. Um, to join him on the stage is Nina Power. Nina is a philosopher and cultural critic. She's a senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Roehampton, as well as a prolific author on issues around European philosophy, politics, and culture. She has also written extensively on feminist theory, art, and activism, and is the author of the acclaimed uh, One Dimensional Woman. Her writings have been published in magazines and newspapers, including The Wire, Freeze, Strike, and The Guardian. She's the founding member of Defend, to the right, Defend the Right to Protest, a fellow of the RCA, and also a member of the British Philosophical Association. Just to explain you a little bit uh, about the, the format of the event, it will start with a presentation from, from Andres, exploring three of his recent research projects, and then Nina will join him on the stage and they will start the conversation. We will be followed also for some time for questions from the floor. A few quick thanks before handing over to our speakers. First, to the Spanish Embassy for their kind support of this event. And secondly, to the RA Architecture Program supporter, the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture, and our 2018 lead sponsor, Turkey Ceramic. Please join me and give a warm welcome to Andre Hacke. But thank you very much to all of you for being here. Thank you very much, Gonzalo, for your invitation. And I'm very happy to be here with you, Nina. Uh, uh, architecture deals with aesthetics. I'm very interested on in how aesthetics are political and what is the political role that aesthetics play. This is uh, the 1929, or it's the reproduction the, the, uh, of the 1929 Barcelona Pavilion. Originally, the original was designed by Miss Van der Rohe and Lili Reich. Uh, but the, the name of Lili Reich has been missing for many years until very recent that it's been claimed that uh, she should be 
consider uh, author of the project as well, co-author of the project. So for me, it's very interesting what's sensed by, through this uh, sculpture here, the Kolbe, uh, the Morgan sculpture, that is very much introducing the figure of a woman at the same time that the action of Miss van der Rohe has been uh, very much directed to erase the presence of that other woman that was crucial for the uh, production of the pavilion. Uh, when we see actually the the uh, uh, the pavilion in itself, it, ha it has a basement. Uh, the reconstruction that was done in the 80s, in the 1980s, included this huge uh, uh, basement that is actually the biggest part of the pavilion. The original pavilion, the 1929 one, had already a basement that was quite tiny, and somehow it started to grow. The need uh, within time of this other part of the pavilion where the pipes, uh, where many other things are. This is the first photograph that was taken uh, of this basement, and it's a photograph that I took uh, 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 when I was invited to do an intervention with my office, the Office of Political Innovation. When we see what is there, it's very interesting that it's also something that was uh, in this previous image, is the cladding of the pond. It's the glass that is used to, to cover and to, to finish the pond, that when it's broken, it's not thrown away, but it's taken down there to the basement. So this is the basement. As you see, it's a huge part of the building that is not been uh, photographed before, nor no been uh, advertised, publicized, <coughs> even discussed by none of the critics that ever wrote uh, about the pavilion. And I wonder why. When uh, the curtains uh, look like that, they stay in the upper part. But when they start to look like this, they're removed and they're taken down to the basement. So the basement plays a key role in keeping the pavilion kind of a Dorian Gray picture uh, that seems to be not aging, uh, but everything that ages is somewhere else. Uh, actually, not only that, the experience, this is the first door that was placed there, and it was not strong enough, to, uh, it's super heavy, so it was removed and a new design was placed there. All the tentative designs that would make it, uh, the design of the pavilion uh, be perceived as a long-term experiment are taken down <laughs> there. So everything that somehow denies the possibility of thinking this as an instant uh, design and protection is kept there. But not only that. Uh, these are the photographs of the pavilion and, the, and the, the upper floor and the lower floor. And this is precisely the architectural device that connects the two realms. And I want to start the discussion or keep with the discussion of gender looking at this guy there that is not allowed in the basement. Uh, we could all think that uh, this is the result of a very bad design because basically you could never get a license to go to the or to, to bring people to the to the to the basement because the, the, the design of the staircase is really not, not honoring any of the regulations. But it was not a bad design. It was a very intended design, intended by the architects who designed these three guys, Man Manuel de Sola Morales, Christian Sirisi, and Fernando Ramos, to make sure that in the future uh, uh, no future director could have the possibility of turning the basement into uh, an exhibition device, a place where the history and the reality of the pavilions could be discussed and explained. So this is their case. Make sure that the basement will remain uh, invisible at the same time that the pavilion will remain not explained. But it's 
something else what we see here, because when we see that these guys who are not allowed there, we see that actually there's a very strong division between, or the, 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 the two-story pavilion is dividing and is creating this binary uh, gender division. This is the, the guy that rules the upper part, and these are the people that run the lower part. Uh, it's basically women, uh, like Fanny or like Ruth, uh, uh, who are in charge, not Victor, like the guy that I showed in the first picture, who are in charge of the basement, the cleaning staff and the, the gardeners. What we did if with an intervention is to revert this order to bring many of the things of the, of the, that are normal in the basement to the upper part. And as we brought them as a, almost a curatorial project, what happened is that the order, the gender division, was totally pervert. And for instance, it was Fanny, the one that had to respond and had, was in charge of deciding when uh, all this and how all these items would be uh, uh, used. And because, of course, they needed to be taken from their podiums to, to vacuum clean the, the pavilion. And to, so for me, what is interesting about this image is that there's a huge um, difference between, or there's probably a huge connection, both between the representation of gender through the sculpture and the way it's materially performed through the design of the contemporary pavilion with the two, two floors. Uh, for me, what is interesting is when, uh, is when Judith Butler claims that gender is performed, uh, we could, from an architectural point of view, uh, find that it's materially performed, that it's actually the design of our buildings uh, what is also creating very particular gender construction and installing them in our daily lives. Uh, this is uh, uh, another inhabitant of the basement. Uh, this is the place where Kat uh, Niebla uh, lives, uh, where Gata Niebla lives. This is, uh, let me introduce you, Gata Niebla. I'm very interested on Gata Niebla. I've been studying Gata Niebla for five years till she died last year, uh, sadly. Uh, I, I'm very interested of the fact that her name, Fog, uh, 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 comes from her eyes. She's the one that was taken to the basement to make sure that the cosmopolitical composition of the pavilion would never have mice and rodents. And uh, she was part of the design. She was actually performing design herself by, uh, by hunting mice. Uh, but she was also designed by the pavilion. Uh, she, her eyes look like that because she, uh, by spending so much time in the dark of the, of the basement, she developed uh, uh, atrophia macular and she could no longer see uh, in the light. So for me, it's very interesting to see how uh, radical uh, bodies are shaped by architecture, how gender is performed through material devices and how that is something that is not symbolical only, but it gets to transform even our bodies and the way they're uh, physically and cellular constituted. Uh, the second work that I, I bring here to open this discussion is this uh, project uh, that is Superpowers of Ten. Uh, are you familiar with the, uh, this movie by the Eames' uh, Powers of Ten? Uh, it's, it's a movie that was done in the, well, the first version was in the early 60s, I believe, the second in 1968, the third one uh, in 1977, and they were uh, based on, the, on this book by Chris Buke, uh, but this is the, the way it looks. I'm very interested on the fact that there's this guy in the center. Of course, this was an architectural, this was an architectural 
uh, device, again, meant to scale up, to span all around the, the world, to become actually a tool to educate people, and it was placing this guy in the center. Actually, framing, it's not, uh, it was not naive and not new in the Ines' work. They were always being framed themselves with this kind of sweet woman uh, feeling and this kind of macho guy. Uh, that was also performing in many ways as a humanizer. Framing was uh, their tool to introduce politics in design, and in particular gender politics. That is something that they inherited uh, from this connection of science, uh, art, and composition that Georgi Kepes started in the late uh, 50s, but if Georgi Kepes was uh, using them to discuss science, they were using them to avoid discussion. When we see uh, the original work, A Cosmic View, of Chris Boke, the, the Dutch uh, architect and pedagogist, we see that there's a huge difference uh, that the images introduced. In the center of this story, there's not a guy, there's a mother uh, with a kid. Uh, and actually, this is the first movie uh, that the, the images uh, with Judith Bronowski did. Um, this super kind of rough version, just by taking the photograph from the book and giving continuity to them. Chris Booker was actually thinking that architecture could design societies, and he was known uh, 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 together with with uh, with uh, uh, with his wife uh, uh, Cadbury, Betty Cadbury, uh, that was the daughter of the, the the owner of the Cadbury factories here, actually that were uh, also uh, sharing this uh, idea that societies could be designed from scratch through architecture uh, and architecture and pedagogy. Uh, what I'm interested on is that uh, the idea that they were, that the, the Chris Booker and, and Betty Cadbury were promoting was an alternative to democracy, was actually the idea of sociocracy that still is very active in many eco-villas in California, and it's this idea that this consensus and not the, represent, not the representation of minorities, what focuses <coughs> societies and provides efficient management. What I think is that Sumin, it's this device to focus societies. Focus societies actually to produce a common sense of we and a common sense of we that happens to be very much centered in a very particular gender construction. So when it goes out there and goes back, it goes to the hand of the guy and there's a direct identification between the genetic composition of this guy and his gender uh, performance. Actually, actually, the Zoom was very popular at that time in 1968 when it was shot. Uh, Zooms are, were very good because they were producing this illusion of, of non-discontinuity, of visual non-discontinuity, whereas they were actually composed out of discontinuity. So basically the case, this black case, is literally uh, uh, black boxing, the transition between very diverse optical devices. Uh, it was something that was meant to make easy the perception of the uh, spatial pro program. So it's the, the one of the first times that it was used is basically through uh, by NASA to make it s look simple, what in fact was very problematic and difficult to achieve. Uh, and actually the way they were producing it had nothing to do with these super, the images, super uh, high-tech images. It was much more, let's say, uh, domestic. <laughs> Again, look at the way these photographs, of course, of course, were staged, and look at the uh, photograph, the, the the whole gender construction around here, 
again here. Of course, uh, Ray was the one setting the picnic, uh, and Rai was the one with this kind of follow-looking <laughs> device. Yeah. These are the photographs, though, that they, they used to convey the project that looks super scientifical and very different to the real ones. But actually, what I'm interested on is that they were producing this difference between this sweet, familiar realm that was super nice, where everything was good, that the woman was producing, and this other threatening out there that was distant from our uh, neighborhoods, as the voice says. Uh, actually, this was something that was very intentional. This is one of the... Uh, 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 one of the slides that they were using to, to, uh, in the storyboard of the, of, of the first version of it. And Judith Bronowski brought it, and then they saw that there were some virus and some uh, uh, mutants chromosomas there, and they decided to remove it uh, as a way to uh, avoid the discussion on diseases and mutations and difference. So in a way, they were doing politics. They were removing, they were excluding a big part of society, but they were doing it uh, look, uh, making politics look like uh, like science. This is the this is me with this woman, uh, who is the main character that was preparing the, the female character in the in the movie, um, and it's part of a research that we did to reenact these uh, superpowers of ten in a way that we could introduce these other stories, uh, so we could bring in many of the photographs, many of the parts of the storyboard that were left behind. Uh, this is the way it looks. We brought in, of course, the virus, the, the chromosomes, all these other things that were there. As we brought in the uh, Hiroshima A-bomb that was placed in the uh, airplane uh, by the same guy that was narrating the movie, a scientist, uh, Philip Morris, uh, that was... Uh, actually the advisor, the scientific advisor of the images, and then became an anti-nuclear activist uh, that also defended that the space out there was not that empty, was full of aliens that uh, we could uh, connect with, and he designed uh, this uh, uh, antenna to do that. Uh, and many other realities, but in terms of uh, gender, it's very important to see uh, what was happening in this hand. Because at the time that the images, and well, the movie, of the, the film, of course, was totally a, a gender device, the, 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 the Kodak uh, film was calibrated to that skin. This is the Searly card, the card that was used all around the world to calibrate uh, the Kodak films. It was, uh, it was precisely calibrated to the skin of this woman. Uh, and this one, it was evolving within time, and it made impossible for decades to photograph people with different color tones. Um, but for me, what is uh, most uh, interesting is to see that in 1968 is precisely the year that everyone was discussing gender and was discussing actually uh, this kind of uh, Miss America uh, female that the images were promoting. Uh, it was the year that in Atlantic City, the whole discussion of feminist discussion. Uh, we crowned a live sheep uh, on the boardwalk the, because the, Miss America and the contestants. To, to the media, and it was actually the time in, the, in which Atlantic City boardwalk became the, the first location where, uh, uh, at, the, at an international and transnational scale, uh, the, fem the feminist movement uh, made it to the media. But also, it's the time, that very moment, where uh, 
the first Miss Black America uh, content was uh, organized, and it was also a way to respond to this idea of the white hegemony. Uh, and it was the moment as well when the uh, transgender movement was at its heights, uh, and all these different uh, uh, alternatives to the story that the images were telling were hidden, and in a way they're not part of this story. Uh, these are uh, for, you, for you to see uh, just uh, evidences of what is the way that this was discussed at that very moment. This was, again, 1979, 1969. Uh, and we were very happy uh, that uh, flawless Sabrina that died very recently uh, had done with Julia Sherman this enactment of the 1969 uh, uh, Miss America contest and we were bringing it back. And I would like to finish uh, so I, I like to see these images as opening the black box of these controversies and showing that the, the movie that the Ames were doing was actually a little bit of a weapon to promote a very binary uh, notion of gender in which there was a direct identification between uh, the genes and the uh, performance of, of, of uh, gender as a means to create a uh, we that was different and opposed to that external reality of the Cold War, of the American, of the Cold War. What we try to bring here is all these other actors. And instead of uh, introducing this focused society that is not representing minorities, to think that actually uh, the role of architecture is to bring in the controversies and all these different actors that are disputing uh, uh, the way we focus and the way we frame society. And I would like to finish with a project that started uh, as a discussion on the, 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 the trajectories of wastewater in New York City, and that it ended up being a longer research on uh, fertility and, and energy. Uh, this is a device we designed that is called Cosmo, but it's actually meant to respond. It's a little bit of a David and Goliath because we're trying to respond to this. 432 Park Avenue. When we see 432 Park Avenue, it's inevitable to think that it's part of the same plot that Bloomberg developed in, 19, uh, uh, in 2012 when he claimed that he wanted to attract as many billionaires as possible to New York City. Actually, this is something that he could do through apartments, allowing LLCs to be used, uh, uh, societies to be used as shelter as salt societies to hide the ownership, the ownership of, uh, uh, of the uh, super high-end apartments, as happens in, in London, of course. What is interesting for me for the discussion that we're having today is that this is a gender project. This is New Hope Fertility Clinic. It's the, uh, the most advanced fertility clinic in, uh, in the world now. It's, the, uh, it's directed by Dr. Uh, Sang, that is the, the inventor of of two things, first the uh, international fertility and two, the three-parent baby. The three-parent baby is actually a way to combine genes from different people to design and to do uh, design babies, actually. What is very important is that uh, the combination of this possibility of the mitochondrial implantation that he inv invented or, or enhanced uh, uh, together with the gene screening, is making it possible to take decisions uh, in terms of gender, but not only that, in terms of the way the, the future kids uh, will look like. And actually, there's a, big, a huge big, big business now uh, in the commercialization of sex uh, cells 
uh, that, for instance, this is one of them. It's called Lookalike that allows you to buy genes that in the future will, or sex cells, uh, with which you can produce kids that in the future will look like famous people. The most expensive one being uh, James Franco. Uh, so if you want your kids to look like James Franco, you can go to Dr. Thans and, and decide to pay more. And, uh, and this is what is happening with celebrities. So we can, we can uh, combine with surrogacy, we can see that this new way of uh, uh, rethinking reproduction is related to images like this, this is the surrogate mother, or to images like this where these kids are composed. What is very interesting is that uh, uh, gender is designed here. Uh, something like 70% of the, it depends on the origin, but 70% more or less of the parents want uh, males. And by males, it's not only uh, uh, kind of uh, bio men, but also it means uh, guys that will be tall, blonde, uh, with very smooth uh, features, and in many cases looking like James Franco, so they can be transnationally successful uh, and being uh, sexually appealing both in Asia and in Western countries. Uh, but this is something that is already embedded in the apartments. This is, uh, the, uh, this is probably one of the most expensive renderings in the history of renderings, of architectural renderings. It's produced by Deepox, uh, and it's uh, meant to sell, to help selling the apartments of 432, this uh, super high uh, apartment, high-end apartment building that I showed you before. Uh, this person here, Kristina uh, Makovsky is a, a sport illustrated model that was selected among 400 candidates. And this guy here is the most important actor figure. Uh, it's not a professional actor or model, is what they call the, in D box the Danny DeBito guy. The Danny DeBito guy is not a model, he's an actual businessman, and he's selected to make it possible for people, potential buyers, to believe that they can be in that situation. And they can be basically, if they buy the apartment, they will get lucky with a woman like this, I guess. That's the basic image. So the apartments are really, again, uh, sexual machines that are defining gender and are defining also the possibilities for, for societies to evolve. But if we see the sky, it's also something that is related to this. Uh, most of the people that are dealing with international reproduction, the production are coming from, from places where, the, the, where they had the opportunity to, big, to make big fortunes, but where the uh, political situation is very unstable. They bring their money to places like New York to stabilize it. So they want to uh, design kids that could make money in places where they can get advantage from the instability, but then secure it in places where they can, the finance system can be stabilized. What we've seen is that in most of the countries where this money is produced, the climatic conditions, and Nerea can probably expand on this, uh, uh, it's the, the air is very polluted, the air and the water are very polluted, and that affects uh, directly reproduction, the reproduction capacity. In places, for instance, like China, China uh, one-third of, uh, of the couples uh, require fertility treatment. Uh, and, and that is something that is directly related to the quality of the air. What I, I'm saying this because one of the things that was first redesigned by, in, in a, uh, to make New York appealing for these investors that produced their kids to operate in these two markets was the sky of New York. It was first designed through renderings. You see this incredibly 
kind of nice uh, sky that for those that are familiar with New York know that is very unlikely. Uh, and, but it was also designed through architecture. These are the kind of glass that is used in 432. It's the most expensive part of the building. And it's uh, an Austrian glass that uh, uh, polarized the, the, the blue color within the light spectrum. And it makes the, the, the sky look bluer, basically. But also it was coordinated with the politics of uh, Bloomberg that basically promote the heating systems in New York in 2013 to move from oil to gas. Uh, uh, and at the time that natural gas was highly consumed in New York, they banned fracking in New York State. So the gas that was consumed in New York would no longer be polluting New York, but would be polluting somewhere else, namely in Susquehanna Valley, that in two years doubled its gas production and keeps doing that to, uh, to provide gas to New York. So for me, what is interesting is basically that these two processes are connected. The construction of gender, the collective management of reproduction, the, uh, the redistribution of roles according to gender stereotypes uh, are part of an overall project in which glass, cordias, basements, the design of animals, ecosystems, the distribution of energy consumption and waste uh, is redesigned through architecture, through regulations, through urbanism, uh, through the way basements and upper floors, are, uh, upper floors are used. So I think the architecture that, we're, uh, that will respond to this is probably architectures that are also using this capacity to, ch uh, to, to challenge these uh, hegemonious ways of dealing with gender. This is Twin Oaks. An intentional community that is in, in the middle of Virginia, of fracked Virginia, decided not to go fracking. They also decided that they would raise their children together, that they would pay altogether the, the hours that anyone would do uh, uh, when taking care of children or elder people or people, people with diseases. So that would be equally accounted as the hours in which they're working in the tofu uh, uh, workshop. Uh, and that uh, they develop. Uh, actually, very active uh, gender discussion, and at this point, 15% of the population declares themselves gender fluid. Uh, this is probably the way that, through design, through territorial arrangement, through uses of energy, through uh, um, uh, new construct gender constructions, uh, a project like 432 is responded. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, now, please uh, give a warm welcome to Nina Power. Well, I think there's an awful lot of things we can talk about. That was an extraordinarily um, synthetic uh, performance. Um, <laughs> I think it's very interesting and maybe revealing that you begin with the basement and I suppose everything that's kind of hidden and the kind of, I, I suppose, racialized and gendered and even sort of animalistic quality of that. And I suppose thinking about maybe earlier ways we think about architecture, even in a sort of so quite stereotypically psychoanalytic way, you know, I guess this idea of like, you know, is there sort of feminine architecture or masculine architecture? I mean, obviously the phallic skyscraper being the most obvious sort of, you know, 
I don't know, everyday psychoanalysis we might perform in our way of thinking. Um, so I think there's something very interesting about the movement from the, from the basement and who is there, and the, the kind of darkness of the basement and the, the lack of recognition there or of the unpaid or poorly paid work or the unrecognised labour of the architect. Um, and then moving all the way up to this actually, you know, quite terrifying image, I suppose, of this, uh, I don't know, uh, reproductive futurism that is itself tied to property speculation, investment, not just in buildings as assets, but also in cells, you know, human bodies as in, you know, images, um, you know, and I think that, I suppose, the, the psychoanalytic idea of architecture is sort of, you know, has given way to something like this biopolitical conception in which, you know, we no longer maybe make a separation as much between, well, here are bodies in space, here are buildings, you know, what's the interaction between them? But it's much more complicated. Um, so I was interested in those things. I was interested in this question of, of transparency and the particular kind of glass uh, that you were talking about and, and actually how much we can see into what's happening in terms of gender and architecture. Um, and I suppose a lot of the work that I've been trying to do around um, gender is maybe, you know, speaking of scale, maybe on a slightly smaller scale, you know, thinking about perhaps a more uh, everyday experience of the, the gendering of objects, you know, the kind of pointless gendering <laughs> of things, you know, why does Lego need to be gendered, you know, wh why does everything have a pink and a blue version? So at the same time as this kind of technophilic, futuristic possibility for three parents, uh, children, we also have this kind of quite regressive, everyday, you know, uh, version of, of gender as this kind of uh, perhaps series of stereotypes, um, you know, particularly aimed at, at children. And it, it seems strange in a way that, that that's happening at the same time as maybe, you know, these questions around gender fluidity and these new types of living, these different kinds of arrangement, different type of architecture. So I suppose maybe the first question, I suppose, is perhaps what's the relationship between, you know, the, the gendering of every day or the gendering of, of many things pointlessly for people, you know, what effect does that have on the small scale in relation to perhaps the question of the gendering of the city or of architecture in a bigger sense, you know, do, do men and women have a different experience of the city? I mean, on the one hand, we would have to say, yes, if you think about questions of safety, you know, security, feeling, you know, that the city <coughs> belongs to you or whether it doesn't belong to you. And thinking about this in relation to protest <coughs> movements, sort of feminist movements, you know, suffragettes, you know, smashing windows, chaining themselves to railings, yeah. but things like take back the night or reclaim the night, you know, that kind of perhaps po politicisation of the city um, in relation to, to gender. And I, yeah, I suppose maybe just it's maybe a more simple question than some of the quite complex things you're talking about. But yeah, gender and the, the small scale design objects mm -hmm. and gendered buildings, you know, is there a, a complex way we experience mm -hmm. architecture, I think? I think that in these cases, what happened in the small scale can only, can only be understood if you connect it to what is happening at other scales. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the rendering of this woman in the, in the, by the window, uh, it could be seen as something, I don't know, tacky and uh, obviously sexist, but 
maybe not that uh, relevant as opposed to other things that are happening. But the thing is that uh, it's not the case, is that that tackiness, that uh, sexism is very much connected to other uh, awful things that are happening in the whole territory of uh, uh, New York and the East Coast. So your question is very good. I think that at one point, uh, the, the focus on the small scale, it's also something that uh, reflects transformations at the larger scale. Not necessarily coupled, but somehow collaborating. That's why I also, don't you think that the, the movie, the, the Imps movie, mm -hmm. is very mysterious in that way because the tiny objects then have to do with the galaxy. And I think that's, in a way, giving importance also to the arrangements that are happening in the picnic. What is the way that you uh, uh, approach the, 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 I mean, I, I know it because I've, I've read it, but, but maybe you can explain a little bit your approach to, to the gender of objects and your discussion of yeah, I suppose so. I mean, just on the Eames point, I mean, it, what it reminded me of actually was the plaque uh, on the spaceship, you know, which is a similar period, which, you know, how do you communicate information to a hypothetical alien race? You know, so the very famous plaque that everyone knows, I guess, would be the, the image, the reductive image of the man and the woman as the kind of, you know, biological species with, with a sort of summary of mathematical information. Like, here is what we know as a species. This is what we look like and this is what we know. And sort of, I suppose, infamously, the image of the woman doesn't have any sexual organs, right? So the, the whole joke was that if aliens, you know, saw it and understood it, they would also be confused, like, how is reproduction possible? And, you know, I mean, there's something, obviously, as you say about this kind of binary, but the sort of the, the setup of the, the, the happy domestic mm -hmm. scene and then this kind of cosmic... I don't know, potential horror or, you know, dis dis disturbing quality of the kind of cosmic scale. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I, I mean, I suppose in a way I'm, I'm quite interested in some, uh, maybe going back to a sort of, you know, you were talking about the late 60s, but maybe, yeah, late 60s, kind of 70s um, critique of, of gender, actually, you know, and the kind of contributions that second wave feminism made to, you know, thinking about the difference in the relation between sex and gender, you know, so thinking about gender as, as sexual stereotypes, you know, that, that are kind of being imposed on boys and girls, you know, and it, it's kind of curious that on the one hand you have a sort of acceptance of some second wave feminist ideas and some critiques, yeah. you know, and this has actually been playing out recently, I suppose, in a lot of uh, discussion of um, grid girls, so the, the, you know, the women who kind of uh, celebrate victories in yeah. uh, sports and darts and gambling and, and you know, all of these industries. Uh, it's been a recent discussion in Britain at the moment. Um, <laughs> you know, and so on the one hand, we kind of say, well, men and women can do and be anything, but on the other hand, we do have this sort of slightly, you know, regressive thing, you know, and obviously there's a kind of way that plays out in terms of architecture as a discipline. You know, it's still very male-dominated. You know, design is still very male-dominated. You know, all of these kinds of <laughs> older questions of representation and, um, and so on. But I suppose on the objects thing, I mean, there's a way in which it's easy to mock objects, you know, pointlessly gendered, needlessly gendered objects. You know, why do we need pink pens and blue pens or, you know, I don't know, toys for girls and toys for boys, you know. It, on the one hand, we can see that, but on the other, if you scale that up, I suppose, you know, then is there a question about public space or, you know, that maybe things are gendered, whether it's the city or buildings, in ways that we don't necessarily, you know, see quickly. Yeah. You know, and of course, you know, I mean, who 
who designs and builds the, 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 the buildings and the spaces that we're in. And I think that, for me, that tension, I suppose, between, um, you know, having a relation to the city, not feeling afraid of being in the city, um, but also having a, a, a sort of a sense of, I don't know, possibility. You know, what does it mean to protest in the city? You know, and I think something like the female voice. So I'm very interested in the, the use of the disembodied, pre-recorded female voice, you know, which you have about 70% of these voices in public spaces are, are female sounding, right? So the, the transport hub, um, whether we're talking about personal technologies like Siri and Alexa. But then more interestingly for me, I think those voices and the train in the train station, you know, you're kind of walking through these spaces and you're being sort of softly coerced, you know, telling, you know, the, the 1517 train will arrive <laughs> 10 minutes late, you know, and they're kind of concatenated algorithmic blocks of speech, you know, or the voice of the tube. Um, and in many countries, it's kind of a similar story. And I wonder about that sort of sonic architecture, you know, the gender of the sound of the city. Yeah. You know, I mean, what, what role maybe does, does sound play in some of what you're... Yeah. Your question is uh, really good. Uh, when we talk of sounds, the, we, we might think that the, the, the sound is already gender constructed in places like Susquehanna Valley. If you think, for instance, most women uh, of certain age don't drive, so it's their partners normally who drive them around. Uh, the truck drivers in the fracking industry are mainly male. The, in the fracking paths, there's almost no women at all working. So it's very interesting that the, the aggressive part of kind of performing digging penetrating the, the, the ground. It's mostly uh, kind of um, people that declare themselves to be men, the ones that are doing it. And they're making the noise. And noise is a big part of this pollution. <laughs> but what is interesting is, and we did a work, Nerea and I together with Columbia University, uh, researching in these places also Nerea. And what, what for me is very interesting is that certain spaces that um, uh, in a community like this are very much used uh, by uh, people that could relate themselves as women, uh, like for instance the kitchens uh, and the, the kitchen sink, are becoming the locations where the damage of fracking is uh, uh, um, uh, becoming evident. For instance, by the mix of water with different gases and, uh, and this thing that you can see in YouTube everywhere that they can burn the, the water. So what is interesting is that there's a distribution of ways for people to relate through noise and through the domains in which they're inscribed that is very much a gender distribution. One of the most uh, active uh, um, or the most important activists in fracking in Susquehanna Valley is Vera Scroggins, that also Nerea knows well. And Vera Scroggins uh, is a woman with uh, two, two, two daughters. Uh, she's been filming uh, in a very nice way, everything that had to do with fracking and the immediate attack that she received is basically that she was sexually abusing her children and that was in the local papers. So when you go with her to many places, she's pointed as a, as a children molester. And, and this is totally embedded with a, within a gender disc, uh, discourse that is very much in the, in the uh, rooted and, and embedded in the, the way gender is being socially produced in, in rural America. So the, the noise, the daily distribution of gender in regards to, or the production of gender uh, through the distribution of spa spatial uses 
and even the access to machinery uh, that manifests very easily through noise is a very good marker as well as an arena of many of the territorial discussions that are now changing this place. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, I suppose one aspect of the kind of use of the pre-recorded female voice that's kind of interesting is, is, well, A, why use that voice? I mean, there might be kind of practical reasons, you know, there are questions of pitch. So, you know, it used to be, you know, in World War II, the, the, it was better to have a higher pitch voice to be heard over the sound of the engine of the plane, you know. So there's obviously kind of practical questions. Older people tend not to be able to hear higher pitches, so they tend to record things in lower voices. So there's a kind of question of the politics of, of pitch um, in the city as well. And I suppose... I'm kind of interested in, the, in I suppose, the mismatch between what seems to be representation on the one hand, you know, why, why then are some noises or voices sort of explicitly coded as male or female, you know, the female recorded voice, but then, you know, male sounds, you know, yeah. of industry, even though, of course, women participated in industry, you know, a lot, and especially during the wars, but, you know, in many places. But, yeah, I mean, we might say that, I suppose, excessively... Uh, aggressive forms of, <laughs> um, I don't know, fracking or something, you know, have a sort of masculine <laughs> quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose what that tells us or doesn't tell us then about representation more generally, you know, why is it that sort of women's voices, albeit disembodied voices, yeah. have this control of the city or seem to operate the city, you know, in a certain way, but it doesn't correspond to actual political power or anything like this, you yeah. know. They're they're sort of being instrumentalised in a particular way, perhaps in a similar way to the woman in the high-rise, you know, as this sort of, yeah, almost a piece of, you know, something that comes with the the building, you know, something that's like a perk, you know, somehow. Um, And I just kind of wonder about that, you know, and I, I wonder about the sort of responsibility that maybe architecture has towards um, perhaps divisions between men and women, you know, and perhaps the sort of gender hierarchy between men and women. And I'm thinking of the work maybe of like Lena Bobardi, for example, in Sao Paulo in the, you know, the Modern Art Museum, uh, the, the gallery where, you know, part of her work, I mean, I think it's an amazing building. I'm interested to know what you, you think about it. But, you know, where the, the building itself, you know, explicitly uh, gives back as much space as it takes, right? So she, you know, the, the, the space under the gallery is for protests, you know, it was designed for, to, for people to circulate, you know, who wouldn't necessarily maybe go in the gallery, but, you know, I mean, of course, now there's a police box in the middle of it, right? But people still protest there. It's a site of protest. And I, I suppose, you know, wondering about, of course, we, you know, neoliberal asset sort of architecture where everything is an investment and you don't necessarily live there, you know, we're even further removed from the question of the public or of the social, you know, and you mentioned, you know, sociocracy and these kind of communal ideas, you know, which are kind of wonderful but very small scale, you know. You can have a sort of limited sociocracy without having a democracy, you know, as you say, without public space, without space for everyone, but rather for a community which maybe has a lovely time. You know, maybe these people have a great you know, gender-fluid life and, and have wonderful arrangements, reach childcare. Um, and I suppose I was also thinking back to what Lenin and Kollontai uh, did about domesticity and in terms of architecture and Soviet architecture from that time, you know, in the sense that, 
domesticity and that kind of individualized, privatized sense is regarded as such drudgery that what you try to do is communize it. But of course, what that meant in practice was, um, you know, getting rid of the kitchen or making very, very small kitchens in collective houses. And then the idea was that everyone would share the washing and the uh, eating together. But then after communism, you just end up with, you know, apartments with very, very small kitchens, you know. <laughs> Um, and like, I suppose, like, is there a, a responsibility then? I suppose that's the question I'm trying to ask. Yeah. You know, what what's, can architecture do to to write some of these? You know, I, I think the uh, I, I don't know if you agree, but I think uh, in the one of the things is basically who's taking the decisions and what's the way the decisions are made. Uh, yeah. In most of these infrastructures I'm presenting. There's uh, the decision making is very concentrated, and for instance, in this fertility clinic, uh, there's also these kind of voices, like female voices, you yeah. know, here and there. But then there's a very masculine management uh, to the extent that, for instance, the the place where the fertility actually happens, this laboratory, is mainly run by women. Uh, uh, but then there's a glass that I sold. Uh, that is designed so the rabbi and other clergy can go and bless the moment of the uh, fertilization, and that's only men. So basically, uh, the women are composing these genes, overseen by Dr. San and other male uh, doctors, uh, at the same moment that uh, they're blessed by another guy that is connecting that to God, I guess. Mm -hmm. So. The whole construction is uh, dividing also power in a way that there's certain uh, female mobilization, but is kept at the uh, uh, at the scale of labor, not that much as decision maker or yeah, 432 Park Avenue, the the tall building. The transformation of the heating system in New York was uh, the gas companies lobbying to to push uh, that, and the argument, of course, was that it was cleaner. But it depends how you evaluate the the, uh, the impact of the environmental impact of gas. If you if you see what's the way that um, Susquehanna and Marcelo Sal is transformed to fracking, you will end up probably with a different reading. But yeah, I mean it's a big thing that basically power keeps being uh, mm -hmm. very much designed in a polarized gender construction and uh, is. Something that I, but that's why I think that uh, the 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 twin O's community is very good. And I think of uh, Silvia Federici when he when she says basically, we cannot uh, we cannot accept that there's only neoliberal capitalism. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, many many other things happening, and they might be tiny, but they're very relevant and significant. And I think that's why I like uh, Twin Oaks uh, because Twin Oaks is a place that is started by being unplugged from. Uh, electricity. Then they decided to become activists against fracking. They bought the. They they were working very hard to to gather money so they could buy the their huge property now. And they they started to develop a very alternative way of life. And it ended up as part of this discussion and a discussion of lab of labor and why not to pay people that are, or why not to consider, because each one has to do 52 hours a week of work. But you can decide whether you do them in the shop or you do them uh, taking care of children, of the children of anyone. And, and I think that probably we can learn a lot from that. It's too that is grounded in uh, things that were discussed in the, in the 60s, 
uh, it's not exactly sociocracy, it's very different because actually it's very much representing, it's very unfocused, I would say. <laughs> so I was talking of these, mm. these people that are they declare gender fluid, but there's many other people that don't declare themselves gender fluid. So I think that probably there's a lot to learn. And actually, you know, it's very funny because it was funded by a bunch of super trendy architects. Uh, they, they believe that they, they, in behaviorism they could find uh, an alternative to society and it didn't work at all. Uh, because they were planning that it would grow and grow and grow and it didn't grow. But now it's growing a lot. So now it's when they all left and other people remain, it's been like that for 50 years now, then they, they, it's starting to, to expand. So, yeah. But it's too. It's a tiny... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not, I, yeah. I don't mean to imply that therefore it's, you know, not important or interesting. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's just, you know, how, yeah, it's a question of scale, you know, is that scalable? And I think one of the, you know, I think it's, it's really revealing that it's a question of care that maybe becomes yeah. central in these communities because, you know, we might say that actually this is going to be, you know, ever increasingly um, a central uh, concern. If we think about automation or the spectre of automation, you know, are, are we able to automate everything? What energy source are we going to actually use? You know, and it's interesting, the nuclear link with the Eames, you know, know. the reader, think about that in relation to the bikini and, you know, the Cold War <laughs> uh, energy source. And it's not like nuclear has gone away. But, I mean, obviously, we can be very critical of automation and say, well, look, you know, doesn't it precisely depend upon a kind of fossil fuel uh, system or something like that? How is it actually going to work? And then the kind of question might be, well, okay, we might be able to automate some jobs that people don't want to do. What are we going, then going to do about people's jobs and lives? You know, we, yeah. do we give them universal basic income? How do we kind of keep people alive when they, they aren't working? But then I suppose the question of care is, well, there are some things that maybe can't be automated or that we don't want to automate, you know, so the care of children, elderly, the sick, and so on. You know, of course, there are care robots in Japan, but they tend to produce loneliness. What a surprise, yeah. you know. Um, do you see what I mean? And I, I wonder about architecture and automation, you know, like, you know, are we talking about machines for living or, you know, what's the relation between kind of architecture and automation? What do you... I think architecture is probably more the process yeah. uh, and probably the out, the, what is exactly the way to, uh, in which things will, or what, what, what are the things that w could change things? This I think is probably difficult to, to envision now. What probably we can think is different processes, processes that probably reduce the, I mean, for, for me it's very exciting also to see that there's this possibility of uh, segregating reproduction and, 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 and gender and like sex and uh, reproduction. So these possibilities are really uh, announcing that there's, uh, that many of the programs that uh, from feminism, for instance, have been discussed in the last years, starts to be there, but it's very much embedded in uh, many ideologies that are really uh, the, the ones that all these movements were trying to, to move uh, from and to, to kind of uh, con uh, confront. So, but for me, it's very important to see that also uh, there's these possibilities and these connections and uh, because they, become, they, they are so unknown and they are so much in the domain of uh, scientists that want to keep the secret so they can commercialize it and they can become an exclusive service. I think the, the, the political discussion of, of all these uh, possibilities is a little bit 
uh, hidden in, yeah. a, in a kind of sector of society that is really sexist. Yeah. So I think we have to open, to go all together to New Hope Fertility Clinic and open the boxes and, <laughs> and somehow uh, democratize it or, or think that this, this requires also to be discussed and we, we operate it somehow. Mm. Okay, um, I mean, maybe we should open up a bit. I have a question for you uh, yeah. in regards to voices. Okay. Uh, because I'm very fascinated by this, uh, the fact that many, many, uh, many bio women that uh, went through treatments that changed their voice, uh, and now they have a voice that is identified as a transgender voice by many people on the phone, they are joining the LGBTQ movements like for instance uh, women that were radiated and at one point their their voice changed and it's, it sounds a little bit transgender to many people on the phone they started to suffer the discrimination that transgender people have suffered historically so they call someone hello my name is hello my name is mari and they say oh mari and then they have a, a an awful response you know and these people because of this treatment they're starting to see what uh, what is the way that other people deal with transgender issues, and they started to join uh, the LGBTQ movements. And I think this is super amazing moment in which you see that gender is not just about your will even, but it's a, a condition that many, that often is not even elected. Yeah. yeah, no, sure. I mean, I think, you know, so just to, to be really old-fashioned again, but I think the second wave feminist point about gender was that it's a social construction from outside, and it's generally kind of, you know, uh, a source of oppression in its gender that should be abolished in a certain way. And, and I think, you know, precisely to allow people to, um, you know, live however they like, wear whatever they like, speak however they, they like, and so on. I mean, I think there's some interesting things about the pitch of the, the female voice. And I, I mean, we have to say, you know, in those, those forms of intimate technology like Siri and Alexa, I mean, they're really on a continuum with an image of a female secretary or assistant, you know, so there's that long history of... Of, of gendering there, you know, as the help, the helper, woman as the helper, the soother, the whatever, supporter. Um, but I think, you know, and, and women's voices on the radio over the decades have actually gone down. You know, people don't, both men and women don't really like listening to very high-pitched <laughs> voices. They had a use in the war and, and so on, but actually the pitch of women's voices has gone down. And there's lots of really interesting work by Anne Karp and others yep. who look look at this um so i mean it's very very contextual i mean i think it's it's clearly the case you know that if you take testosterone you know as a woman your voice your voice will will become low and stay low um you know in, in in most in most cases obviously you can do kind of different forms of voice training you know think about margaret thatcher in britain you know yep. how to sound more authoritative how to sound less you know feminine mm -hmm. um i mean it's it's very of course, political at every moment, you know, whether we, uh, you know, laugh or <laughs> how we speak or, um, and I suppose the, the, maybe the female voice doesn't get to be neutral in the same way that the man's voice is. So whether you have a low voice as a woman or, you know, um, or high voice, it's, it's not the norm, you know. Mm -hmm. So even though we live in the city with the, with the sort of female voices everywhere, it's, it's perhaps, we notice it more. We wouldn't necessarily... Gender, although although humans tend to gender voices really quickly, it's one of the first things we do, or basically unconsciously, when we hear someone on the phone, especially if we can't see them, we we assign a gender to the voice. So your example of the telephone would mm -hmm. make sense, and actually, genderless voices or voices that don't sound easily immediately like men or women are, are actually quite. Uh, 
uh, people don't like them because they've been trialled in various sort of, sort of things, you know, electronic devices and so on. People don't want the robotic voice, mm -hmm. you know, t in general. You know, yep. of course, some people might want it, but actually the futuristic voice isn't what we have. It's mm -hmm. not the voice of technology <laughs> or GPS or whatever, yeah. Do we have any questions? So, first of all, thank you for your discussion. It's been very interesting. I was wondering, because we, you've mainly talked about big cities, and, and in fact we were showing New York, and those cities as being uh, historically places where men used to work, it's more focused on, on the idea of working and all that mm -hmm. stuff, uh, whereas the female figure was usually in the suburb, suburban space. So I was wondering if now that, uh, especially within the 20th century, that's, there's been this uh, shift and this idea of the women uh, being introduced into the workplace uh, and as well into the city, cities like New York and, and all that stuff, if there's been any change or if we can witness somehow any any difference, any uh, more feminization of the uh, city, cities like New York, for instance, or anything like that? Yeah, it's a very good question. The, f the, the labor market has been totally transformed since the 60s or 70s in a place like New York City. Uh, now, this distinction that you're doing is not that easy to find. Uh, what happens is most, mostly, as we all know, is that uh, men, women, and others, they, they, we all work uh, when there's possibilities and there are sectors of society that are unemployed and they can be identified uh, mainly through uh, age, gender, and race, but it's a combination of the three of them. Uh, but what happens is in the ones that, are, that uh, uh, women and men are mostly uh, equally working, uh, the working conditions are very different. Uh, so, of course, we know that there's this divide, uh, gender divide. Uh, but I could say that it's very interesting to see that also this notion of suburb and city is been totally challenged in the last years. Uh, the, the, and not by this formula of commuting and not commuting, it's basically that uh, in a place like New York City, you can find people that are very disconnected uh, and they're in the right, in the, in the center of the city. Uh, but the, the way the, our realities uh, are happening simultaneously in on and offline spaces, uh, the fact that the, uh, the investment uh, portfolios are becoming so extremely different, uh, the, the, the societies uh, sharing space, uh, a space like New York, but it's totally divided. And you can find experiences of people that are even more disconnected and more ruralized than in rural areas. So I think the, the whole structure of, this, of the city, social, socio-spatial structure of the city, uh, it's in a way leaving us without ways to even describe uh, what's going on. The, the, what I'm trying to do is uh, then invent, not invent, but discover new categories. I think what, what I like about connecting things that happen at different scales is that it allows to explain phenomena that otherwise would be seen as isolated as part of, the, of one reality. And at, when you do that, you can understand why it was important to damage the living conditions of people in Susquehanna to uh, attend and to honor this mandate uh, of attracting billionaires. And how that is related to the fact that within probably 15 years, we'll start to see many young James Franco all around in Columbus Circle. <laughs> hopefully, I mean, hopefully not. Hopefully we can challenge it. But, 
but that's probably something that we will see. And not only there, but probably in all the uh, expensive restaurants all around the world. So we're probably witnessing a very different society. Or we're, we're seeing the, the, the race of a very different society, and we need probably other categories and tools to have a say on, on that evolution. So it's very interesting what you're saying, yeah. Um, I think just picking up on a th similar idea, I'm interested in the idea of um, hidden spaces or secret spaces mm -hmm. in relation to gender and both sexuality. Yeah. So looking at the basement in the Mies van der Rohe pavilion, yeah. you're saying that that's a, a female gendered space and it's a hidden space. And also thinking about the fracking community, they are, they're both, you're explaining them as female spaces, but it's almost one more of economics, it seems, yeah. where, where you've got, either people who are poorly paid, because, because they're women or communities that are less well off. But then on the flip side, thinking about queer spaces in cities, particularly LGBTQ bars that are disappearing in London, I think it's the same in, yeah. in New York, probably a lot of other cities. And this is a community that doesn't need to hide as much as it did, but they are losing those queer spaces in the city as a result of it. It seems a shame for the latter that that is happening because the city's losing some of that richness. But of course, on talking about spaces for poorer communities, it's, it's almost what you're saying. And there's, there's, yeah. there's this sort of, they're, they're growing further apart, affluent spaces and, and poorer spaces. And, and how mm -hmm. do you think that reflects on both gender and sexuality? Yeah. Well, your comment is super complex, so I would ascribe it to start with. Uh, I, I think, but I think you're right that uh, probably the discussion of visibility that was very useful uh, in the past, for instance, in architecture, there was a whole kind of context of theory on visibility, publicity, and, and transparency that was super uh, important, but it's evolving into something that has to do with uh, control interaction and other ways of expressing that visibility comes with certain access of power and exclusion. So it's, it's very much locating uh, politics. And I think that's very important in the way you're, you're explaining it. For instance, the, the, uh, the, the fact that there was a gender segregation that was produced or polarization through the two-story pavilion, uh, it's also mixed with uh, the, the basement somehow providing certain opportunities of empowerment for the women that were working there. For instance, the fact that almost the, the managers could almost never go down there uh, provide them a space of certain autonomy. And it makes it very difficult for them to, to be visible at the time that we were transforming the, the re, kind of uh, reverting everything. So the, because uh, the, the uh, hierarchy was still there uh, by bringing their things up, you, we were not able to subvert that hierarchy, but they were exposed. So your, your comment on the LGBT community losing their spaces of autonomy, I think is very relevant. We did a work uh, together in the design museum on uh, Grindr. And Grindr, for instance, uh, became a space of a, a way of uh, restyling uh, a big part of the gay in interaction. 
uh, and to turn it into a location for lifestyle. Whereas at the beginning it was more an, a connective infrastructure, the fact that it made uh, gain is very visible and uh, it gave the opportunity to, re to rebrand gayness as a space of uh, fashion uh, and interior design consumption. And that was, uh, that was something that uh, was the origin of these collaborations of Grinder with J.W. Anderson or with uh, Paper Magazine. And uh, it, uh, we, we can see that, that Grindr is directly related to this disappearance of those spaces of, of the LGBTQ community. And that uh, the most uh, desired place for Grindr users to switch on their app is uh, uh, um, the High Line. And I did uh, interviews on that and they were wishing they could, they could meet someone that is living in one of these from floor to ceiling uh, glazed apartments. <laughs> so Grindr is becoming a little bit like the rendering of that in a gay version probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to make an, uh, a question. I would like to bring back like this um, um, idea about like the responsibility. And actually it, it was a very good example, the one that you gave about Lina Bobardi and, and how uh, through like a specific like architectural and or urban design, uh, you can like uh, empower like certain like uh, gender quality that go mm -hmm. again like the establishments. Um, this is something that uh, sometimes is intended like in that case, but in some other cases is unintended. Like what it happened in the um, in the Central Bank of Hong Kong, designed by Foster, something that it was documented by um, by Marisa Gonzalez, an artist, who who documented how like the domestic cleaners they were like gathering like once a week, I think it was, uh, all these domestic cleaners coming from Southeast Asia uh, to go there to like prepare food, like to gather and to it was like a purely like. Um, female like context where they felt like safe and secure. And it's surprising that it happened within a foster building. But um, um, aside from that, like uh, I would like to to talk about like this. Uh, uh, it's th this is in the in the public space and in the in a more like urban scale. But there is also like um, in terms of domesticity and you mentioned that briefly, uh, there is like these new personal assistants which are I think in a way, like uh, and something that has been like quite criticized, it's about like the responsibility not only on the architect that sometimes are responding <coughs> to a context, some other times are like just like yeah, like part of it like, uh, and not changing it, things. But in terms of domesticity, there is also another responsibility that comes from the technological companies and how like this kind of new Cortana or uh, Alexa or the Google Home are all um, um, sold and actually very interesting that the Alexa were like the most sold mm -hmm. item on Amazon last, last Christmas. Mm -hmm. They are all uh, preset with a female voice uh, in it. it. They say that it's not a female voice, it say, they say that it's a warmer and softer because this is what like the, um, the most of the users they want um, for, 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 for their like personal assistant. But it's in, it's, it's in a way like putting a female voice <laughs> into like a servant-like device. Um, and it's interesting because in terms of domesticity, there's not been like much change uh, over the last decade, except in like this one, that now the smart home is coming uh, with a gender nature uh, that is in, in this Cortana, uh, even in the own name, is a, is a sort of like female association 
into them. Um, I was wondering, like, to add you both, like, what do you think is like the responsibility of the architect and also like this technological company in the chains or like the kind of like reinforcing like this kind of gender politics within a space that apparently is not changing in terms of architecture, but it's changing in terms of like the application of the like digital technologies. And, and, and how architecture can respond to that or, or not? Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose one of the things I was trying to say is, is we might notice gender more in those kind of intimate technologies. You know, it's more immediate. Um, but then it's sort of scaling it up to the city and asking what are the things that we don't see maybe that we don't kind of pick up on in terms of the way in which public space or, or places we walk through um, might also shape our gendered experience of the city or tell us something about gender, positive or negative, I suppose. Um, you know, and I, and I suppose, well, it's, it's a really difficult question, isn't it? I mean, do, do we experience space as gendered? Do we experience space differently, you know, in the way that we are gendered? I mean, Grindr is fascinating in many ways, and it does, you know, very tie into that question about then, you know, do we then need sort of uh, those spaces... Um, because it's also a way of mapping the city and having a relation to the city. And you know, one might, I love this story about this this guy, gay guy who lived near the train station, and he didn't have very many relationships. But as soon as Grinder uh, emerged, he had sex all the time because it, he was the first person that was, you know, when you turn your phone on or get out in the new city, and he was like, Grinder is the best thing that ever happened to me, you know. And that's a kind of different experience of the city on the basis of this kind of gridding and this, you know, technology. And also, I mean, we have to note, of course, that. Alexa and all these all these devices are also spy spying devices. I mean, their data collection. You know, of course, they. Yes, you know, <coughs> the gendering of the boys, calming, you know, reassuring, helpful, secretarial, you know. But they're also like very menacing, and <laughs> you know, and there's something about kind of using a a kind voice or a or a, you know. Uh, softly coercive voice that actually has a, you know, is a form of political control and surveillance and all, you know, and all of that. And we could talk about that for a, a very long time. And, you know, I suppose the, the tricky question, maybe it's just an open-ended one or one to put back to you then, you know, but do buildings have a similar effect? Like, you know, and if so, how, right? Yeah. You know, it seems kind of unanswerable, maybe kind of a strange question to, to ask, but you know, that's the tricky move, and I don't know. It's easier to talk about gender in small scale, but, yep. you know. I mean, one thing that has to do with gender and architects is this famous images of architects' hands. Like, yeah. it's super famous, like, the, these images of Le Corbusier doing like this in his, on his models, you know? Like, mm. like uh, his hand was illuminating uh, the design. Yeah. Uh, I think that is uh, uh, something that is a very particular gender construction of a very dominant designer uh, that sees things from above. I think that one of the things that we can immediately uh, understand from the work, for instance, of Haraway and the, the, the need of locating uh, knowledge in action, it's very much that it's never from above or, or not, it's not desired that uh, we work from, from above. Like, uh, drones uh, uh, with yeah. uh, you know bombing from above or or shooting from above like a drone strike. So I don't think that we want to be the drone strike um, uh, architect's model. You know, like uh, so. So if we think of that, probably uh, the first transformation is that architects had to be down there and recognize that they're uh, part of uh, 
uh, an interaction with many, many other actors, and that's already a transformation that also is related to gender uh, stereotypes. But the second, I think, has to do with the, the, the fact that I think that we're uh, entering a very different uh, techno-human yeah. realm in which responsibility is not that uh, predictable. I'm, I have in mind all the time this uh, big uh, dispute or a kind of controversy around the, the, the people that hacked uh, these sex toys that are, you know, <laughs> these sex toys that you can use in the distance uh, with yeah. different partners. So maybe each one has a very particular uh, dildo or any other uh, device introduced or around his, her, whatever body. And they are connected in the distance to uh, internet, and you can uh, decide the, uh, the speed of the vibration, the intensity, the moment. Uh, and there's a, a kind of a possibility of having sex uh, through these technological mediations. Uh, some people started hacking them. So uh, <laughs> imagine that. Imagine that we're having sex in the distance. I decide to to uh, speed it up uh, at one point, and and then there's someone that is hacking and is deciding to slow it down. So people were saying that they had been raped yeah. uh, through this hacking, and it put us in a situation like the courts were saying, "Yeah, technically, yeah, it's rape. Why not?" The only thing is that the rapist is um, someone that was in collaboration. It's a collaboration of humans with non-humans. So it's. The whole thing. So I think that probably we're facing also a very different uh, kind of legal realm in which responsibility probably will be seen differently. So, sort of yes and no, though. I mean, for all of those things, I mean, you know, these we're still talking in general, you know, with Me Too and so on and kind of harassment in cities and workplaces. You know, these are very old school <laughs> forms of sexism as well. Yeah. You know, these still survive. These still are very dominant, mod, you know. Yeah. Like, I wonder if... <laughs> you know, whether there's something that new, really. And, and I, I wonder about things like the technology of reproduction, you know, you're talking yeah. about, you know, I mean, ultimately, surrogacy is still cheaper than, you know, having this incredibly expensive, do you know what I mean? You know, it's yeah. to pay women in the developing world to carry <coughs> your child, do you see you know what I mean? Like, I think the politics of all these developments, you know, has to be registered and measured against the, the sort of political insights, you know, of feminism, of, of, you know, people who are thinking about gender, you know, it doesn't change that much. I want, I wonder, you know, whether it does, like, there, of course there are new questions, but. Well, but of course we have to acknowledge that uh, gender discussions are very rich and disputed. They're very plural and disputed. So the, uh, yeah, probably there's, from the whole discussion of prosthetics, for instance, mm. this can be framed. But it's all, it also challenges other notions of feminism, for instance. Or, so yeah, you're right. I think that it's, it's very important that we care about the ecos ecosystem of ideas that yeah, brought us I, here. Yeah, exactly. And I think your method, you know, like how, to, how these things link up, you know, how does fracking link to the skyscraper? Yeah. You know, that's really, really important, isn't it? Because they are all connected and they, they are kind of, you know, somebody suffering at one end is somebody benefiting at the yeah. other, you know, in that, that kind of way of thinking yeah. globally or cosmically or however, yeah. you know, you want to put it, yeah. And in terms of activism, I think that we, um, I mean, one thing is the, also the, the discussion of different forms of understanding feminism, but at the same time, I think that it's very important that we understand that uh, each of them, for instance, is responding to very particular circumstances that keep being 
active in most cases. Like for instance, the very direct uh, uh, claim that uh, women and men should be equally paid, it's something that is totally current, no matter whether we also want to discuss the gender binarism, that is a priority that we shouldn't uh, damage by discussing binarism. So, so probably it's also something to learn that, uh, because I believe that this discussion can contribute to, uh, to make the discussion of technology, the discussion of politics, the discussion of the environment much richer. What is being discussed in, gen in the context of gender disputes and politics is something that uh, can benefit from which many other fields can benefit. Yeah. And architecture, for sure, because we, we, can, we can understand how critical many of the things that uh, happened in the architecture in the last decades were from the perspective of many different forms of, of gender activism and, and also I would say queer uh, activism as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I totally agree and I think it's very important that we care for this ecosystem of of ways of understanding notions of feminism. And yeah, I mean, I suppose most of it is on the level of discussion, representation and stats and quotas at the moment, but I think it's definitely much more of a kind of public discussion, you know, that, like, you know, much more often, even sort of high up male architects will occasionally say things like, this is terrible, <laughs> you know, what are we doing about it? Um, I mean, I suppose the difficult question is, is what, effect it will have on architecture as a practice, who knows, right? I mean, it's, it's almost like that question, you know, without patriarchy, what would women have done, right? <laughs> you know, it's impossible to say because we live in that world, you know, so of course everything is in relation to what already exists and precedes and, and so on. And, and I mean, it's a very big, difficult question about the whole history of human creativity and, you know, <laughs> um, but I mean, what do you think? I mean, you're more closely tied to No, but, to but I'm very interested in here in your, your reading of this, I, I think that most, the question is very good and it's very direct. Uh, in most uh, schools of architecture, uh, the majority of students are women. Mm. And, and then the, uh, the commissions and the positions of, uh, let's say, the higher positions in architectural companies are mostly taken by men. And that's something that is, uh, uh, long-running reality. Uh, people, uh, I think that there's many people mobilized uh, by this reality and there's new f claims that go from, uh, from transforming the faculty in schools and making sure that, uh, that there's a, uh, an equalitarian and fair representation of genders. Uh, but also, for instance, to even things like the uh, the awards, famous architectural awards, to be clearly uh, 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 dealing with uh, equalitarian uh, attention to f female uh, practitioners. So your question is very, very, very important. At the same time, is it's really embarrassing for the field of architecture that for many years is been running this discussion and and the, it's still uh, very uneven the 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 possibilities for female architects and for for male ones there's people that even tracked what happened to female architects as opposed to male architects and the their incomes, their capacity to work independently, many of these things are very, very much reduced among women. 
I'm afraid we have to conclude here. But I would like to thank you and both of you for your very wonderful uh, contributions. Uh, I think it's a very important moment to talk about like uh, gender politics and in particular in the same moment that we are like all the relationship between human and non-humans are being redefined <laughs> and the non-human that are supposed to be like genderless are actually becoming with a very gender identity. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, uh, thank you very much and I would like to invite you all to join us for a drink in the adjacent room, the library. Um, yeah, and but before that, please give a very warm applause to Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.